Welcome, everybody, to the Right on Crime podcast uh, featuring prosecutorial innovation in America. Uh, and today, um, I'm your host, by the way, Kurt Altman. And today, I am fortunate enough to be in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, with not only one, but two elected district attorneys from here in Pennsylvania who are really, really leading the way uh, in innovation and, and new ideas, uh, which is often a tough thing to do. Um, as a prosecutor. With me, my first guest uh, joined the Navy uh, right out of high school, um, got out of the Navy after four years of honorable service, went to Penn State. I won't hold that against them. Uh, graduated from Penn State with a finance degree, worked in business at UPS for quite a long time while earning his law degree. And I think in 2009, became an assistant district attorney in York County, Pennsylvania. Uh, and in 2017, was elected uh, to be the district attorney uh, in York County. In their two terms, I want to uh, introduce you and welcome uh, David Sunday. Kurt, it's great to be here. Thank you. Hey, man, thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. And our other guest, uh, who's hosting us here in Bucks County today, um, graduated law school around the time I did back in 1993. Uh, also, um, practice law as an assistant district attorney in New Jersey. A couple counties here in Pennsylvania apparently couldn't keep a job. Um, <laughs> once he decided to keep a job, he too uh, was appointed to the district attorney position, ran for office, was elected in 2017, and is serving his second term after being elected again in 2021. Uh, my guest, Matt Weintraub. Matt, um, thanks for being here. Actually, thanks for having us here. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I, I was really glad that we could put this all together, Kurt. I'm, I'm excited to share some of our great ideas that we have in prosecution in the 21st century. Well, we're excited to hear about it. You know, uh, one, I don't get to talk to elected DAs like you guys very often. Definitely, I don't get to do it with two of you um, who are really leading the way and, and, and I think having some battles sometimes um, to make some changes and keep your community safe. I, I want to start um, by talking to you both about uh, your history. I mean, both of you, I find unique, came from being actual trial lawyers instead of politicians. I know you have to run for office. I know you have to get elected to office. But you both tried criminal cases from small ones to big ones for a lot of years. Uh, this has to be very different, uh, being the elected district attorney, running an office, dealing with the policy. So why did you guys do it? and tell us some of the challenges. And I'm gonna let you guys talk because we have some fun here and I'll let you guys um, you know, talk over each other if you have to, because I know you're buddies. I'll follow your lead, I'll be a good yep. host. Well, I appreciate that, Matt. Um, no, just like you said, the way that I started uh, through the office was trying cases. Um, in York County DA's office, um, I don't know how it is here in Bucks, but you're trying cases very quickly as a new prosecutor. And like many of the, the counties throughout the Commonwealth, you have a, a huge amount of cases and you don't have a huge amount of prosecutors. And so from day one, you're doing it. And so I remember in, in the first few years in the office, I mean, I tried tons of jury trials, everything from retail theft, DUI, aggravated assault. Ultimately, within the first few years, and you would go up through to um, attempted murder, I attempted murder of a police officer early on um, to first degree murder cases. And so we tried, you know, I personally tried many uh, first degree murder cases, including capital cases. 
um, where we received the death verdict. And so, so I, I say that I'm sure Matt has some similar feelings, but as you come up through the system like that, you learn very quickly that it's about humans and people. And I know that may be obvious, but the reality is when you get into policy land, sometimes it's hard for people that haven't gone through looking at um, victims' families, um, the families of people who are going to jail for the rest of their life and understanding how crime impacts them. And I know I can say that experience has profoundly affected me as I've moved on to be the elected DA. And I look at policies for my office. Um, and I can tell you right now that that going through that has made these like policy decisions way more personal because I understand the impact on the people. Matt, it sounds to me like Dave said he didn't learn this through a white paper from some nonprofit that wrote or or uh, researched and educated uh, people doing the job about it. He learned it on the job. It sounds like you did the same thing. Yeah, and I, I'd like to give my mom credit. She taught us growing up, uh, there's no such thing as trial and error. She preferred to call it trial and education. And man, did I take some lumps <laughs> coming up. Uh, Kurt, like you, I've been doing this now for, this is my 30th year. And I learned so much more from my mistakes or things that didn't work or policies that I've that I've tried or thought about or or that failed uh, than any of my successes because when you're successful, which we often are, thank goodness, uh, you you tend to rest on your laurels. But as Dave pointed out, it's being in the trenches, it's working side by side, not only with your fellow prosecutors, but with the police, with the victims, the witnesses, and frankly, even the jurors that get a summons maybe once every three years and are like, oh my gosh, I have to serve. Uh, it is very, very important to stay grounded and remember where you came from. I grew up here in Bucks County. There's a map on the wall I could point out probably close to my block, if not my house on there. And that gives me a, a real sense of pride of place. And so any decisions that I make are with that in mind. Like these are my neighbors. These are people that I went to school with, people that I socialize with. And I never forget that. And I feel if you keep that in the front of your mind, whatever policy decisions or case decisions you're making, you're generally going to make a principled and good decision. And, and everything we do, you know, we view it through the lens of our personal experience. And I know that the years, it was funny because when I first got elected, well, when I first became a prosecutor, uh, I went to law school a little bit later in life. And I look back on all those years before that, and I was like, man, you know, this is going to be something that kind of holds me back is what I initially thought. But then I realized very quickly that eight years working at UPS, you know, working um, four, four of those years where, where people load and unload the trucks, working with those guys and girls and experiencing life with them was critical for me because I worked with people that were on work release, probation, parole. I mean, and they knocked it out of the park every day. And I was with them just like this, and I'm talking about the struggles they had. And, and I never forgot that as the years went on, and I'm in the position I'm at now. I never forgot those people because those are the people who we're here for. And as we make policies, it impacts them. And I just wanted to, to make that clear that you know we all bring our life to this table. Well, I, I think it's, it's really impressive, I, I think, what you said, Dave, that it's a human business, right? I say it all the time. You can ask some people in this room that I, I say that. Uh, and I think 
sometimes the humanity is forgotten, uh, at least what people perceive prosecutors to be. They don't think about them being humans, right? I think there's a, a, a issue out there, or at least a perception that, hey, prosecutor's job is to take the criminals that commit crimes and put them in prison for as long as they can. Um, I presume we're having this podcast because you guys don't exactly agree with that. Um, but that act affects so many more people than the person who you're actually prosecuting. And, and so what have you done uh, to help address that in the community, make the community better? And, and why do you have to think beyond the actual offender? I'd love to, to uh, riff on that for a second, Kurt. Uh, and, and I will grant you that when I graduated from Temple Law School, I felt almost like an ideologue where it was the good guys versus the bad guys. You, you picked a side, and that was the side you fought for uh, being competitive but not talented at sports. That's what you were taught <laughs> growing up. And uh, so that was the ethos. And, and I thought, well, if I become a prosecutor, I'm going to wear the white hat. I'm going to lock up the bad guys, put people in jail, keep people safe. And that, that all was true. Through experience, you learn that it's really two sides of the same coin. Uh, the people that are fighting for the individual's rights, uh, we need them because without them, there's tyranny and uh, we can't have that. So I'm very grateful for the people that, that fight for the individuals, uh, the defendants for their rights. And, and oftentimes I've been persuaded to no charge a case because somebody on the uh, quote unquote other side has done a great job. But since I've become the DA, and I promise you I'll address your, your question. <laughs> Please, I'm sure you will. <laughs> since I've become the DA, I realize that it's, it's more than A, locking up bad guys, but that is important, but that's just a subset. It's more than seeking justice, but that is critical, but that's just a subset. It's about public safety. And it's not only keeping the people in our community safe, but it's making them feel safe. And that is really part of the challenge of the job, because we have to do things like this podcast to convey our message, to allow people to know that we are not just we're certainly not regressive. We're not just reactive. And I know this is a buzzword that's uh, portentous, but we can be progressive in that we can be thoughtful about what works and doesn't work. And to get to the root of your question, as I promised, finally, um, <laughs> I think that we have to attack the root of criminality. What is What causes criminogenic thinking? Why do people commit crimes? Are they uh, addicted to drugs or alcohol? Do they have some other underlying issue that if we could solve that, perhaps it's mental health problems, if we could solve that, then we can take them out of the spin cycle of the criminal justice model where they maybe don't belong in the first place. And that's really where I've taken my deepest dives in trying to effectuate policy changes. So, uh, you know, doing my research uh, into both of you after we met earlier this summer, it seems like you both. Um, have that kind of mindset uh, going forward. So, you know, I've seen in both your bios and your programs, uh, you're both very involved in in addressing the op opioid crisis and different drug crises um, and, and trying to effectuate, you know, change in the community, which will keep people out of prison and hopefully the community safer, right? So specifically, and I saw, Dave, you brought some statistics uh, in York County. What are you doing um, and, and what has worked and what hasn't worked and, and what kind of issues are you having trying to protect the community in a different way, in a way more than just putting the bad guy in prison? Well, the takeaway and, and, and Matt hit a lot of 
spot on points. And and I just want to kind of like kind of walk off that a little bit. The first part of this is at the end of the day, we have to think about how do we make the community safe? Okay. Um, because nothing else else matters if the community is not safe. And so when you look at policy decisions that a DA makes, we have to remember that that we have our own sphere of influence, right? And what what we have done in York, and I know other people have done it as well, um, is we adopted a philosophy of maximum engagement. And so what I mean by that is we engage and collaborate with all of our partners. Okay, this that would be everything from probation to children, youth, and family to the county commissioners, um, the police. Through um, in York County, we do a lot of work with the um, with our Black Ministers Association. There's a chiefs and clergy group. Um, when you look at our prison, our prison's a huge part of this too, because our the work we do at the prison's critical because of the amount of people that go there, right? And so. Um, so we've adopted maximum engagement, okay, through that philosophy. It's sort of like the idea marketplace. And ideas have come up from all these different groups that are involved in the system. And what we try to do is support each other because at the end of the day, when when we have fewer people committing crime, everybody benefits. You know, when you look at the cases in York, and I too will also answer your question, but as lawyers, you know, we we like we have a big build up for hey, this. I'm, but, you I'm know, used to it. And I'm so, used to it. But uh but that being said, when you look at the cases, and I think we have a similar caseload to Bucks County, um, I would say probably 30% of our cases are people that need to go to jail because of the impact on the victim, impact on society, severity of the crime, whatever that may be, they need to go to jail. Um, there, there are people that just do, um, at the same time, we have uh, the other 70% of the cases that are people that are in the throes of addiction, that are in the throes of serious mental health, um, issues, code diagnoses between the two, um, people that are homeless. And we have people that are committing crime after crime after crime because of that. And you know, we often forget about crimes like DUIs, for example. You know, in, in York County, a third of our adult caseload are DUIs, and half of those DI, DUIs are drug DUIs or drug and alcohol combined. You know, you have a, the, the greatest chance of, of death or serious bodily injury happening to you or a loved one through someone who is intoxicated on the roadway. And so a lot of this data that we're talking about have come about through our maximum engagement working with all of our partners. So with that said, um, you know, to, you have to get to a place where you are working with everybody. Now, one of the, a lot of the things that we've done in York um, are data-driven, evidence-based. I know everybody's sick of hearing those words, data-driven, evidence-based. We all hear it, but it allows us to make the best decisions with the highest likelihood of a positive outcome, right? So actually starting on the back end, we're co-chairs of our reentry coalition, Okay. So the York County Reentry Coalition is a very robust group of people everywhere from employers in the community to we have an executive director. Um, we work with the prison. We work with probation, prosecutors, and we do everything we can to decrease barriers to reentry for people that are coming out. 
Okay, 90, go ahead. Break that down for, for our folks. So right. barriers to reentry. I say that all the time. Yep. We talk about the back end, people coming back. What are barriers to reentry? So the guy served the sentence, he comes out. So, so what? So to start with, I mean, 95% of everybody that goes into a jail is coming back out. 95%. So they don't go off into some land where they just disappear. They're coming back. And half of them- And probably going home. Half of them will go back in within three years. The number one statistical indicator of whether they go back in or not is um, joblessness. Okay, so that's not necessarily the cause, but it's something that we know if we can keep people working. So they, on, typically, someone comes out of prison, they've lost their job. Okay, um, they may not have had uh, their mental health issues taken care of. They may not have had their substance abuse issues taken care of. So they're walking out of jail without a job. Um, they've lost, you know, they, they haven't addressed these, 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 these issues that are causing them to commit crimes. Um, oftentimes they've lost contact with their family. Okay. They don't have any money. A lot of times they just stand in front of the jail and get, find a way to walk, you know, 20 miles to get to wherever they have to go. Um, there are a tremendous amount of expectations on them through rightfully so through the justice system. Um, and so they're in a homelessness. A lot of them don't have a place to live. And so we take these people, we put them back under those circumstances and expect them to put a suit on, you know, go do a job interview, show up and, and get after it and do it the right way. It's really difficult for them to do that. Now, yeah. I'm a firm believer in accountability. Okay. Accountability and redemption. You have to be held accountable for your crimes. Once that accountability, once someone has been held accountable, if we don't, and, and Matt, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on this, but like if we don't take care of these people, not take care of them, if we don't create a situation where they can be successful, yeah. then don't you think that that just causes them to commit more crimes? You, you, you said something right? there, Dave, that I want Matt to address. You said a word that that you just don't, I don't think the public's ever really related to prosecutors and law enforcement, but you said redemption, mm -hmm. right? I mean, accountability, okay. They have to go to jail, 30%, 70% might not. Accountability and then redemption. I feel like the revolving door exists because we don't think about the redemption part enough. I mean, is that is that your experience, Matt? And just to address some of the stuff that Dave said, I mean, what, what's your take? And I know we're talking about humans, and we got a very special guest we who's do. not human here today, but we'll get to her in a minute. Yeah, it's our our, our most famous, most popular employee, but that's <laughs> just a little teaser out there. Kurt, uh, I, I feel like what you have here is you have two people of the same mindset that have learned, learned experience. Uh, maybe, so we're doubling down on our message, but uh, I, I have a great, uh, I have a great uh, story that I could tell about this. There's a guy, and he knows that we, we speak about this together, a guy named Morris Derry. You talk about lived experience. This guy, when he was younger, he, he grew up in Bucks County, and he started committing burglaries. He wouldn't say they were drug fuel, but he committed a bunch of home, home burglaries, no one home. And uh, I put him in jail for five to 10 years. He went to jail. He did his time. Jail was terrible. And I, I had lost track of him. This was in the 90s. And when I came back, as you said, I've been in a couple of different offices. I was doing a march, a recovery walk march. And next I see this big dude next to me. I was like, oh man, <laughs> I think I know this guy. And I say, are you Morris Derry? And he says, 
yeah. <laughs> I was like, uh-oh, it's about to go off and not good. <laughs> and uh, he's like, I know who you are. I was like, they yeah. always do, right? Well, <laughs> you know, exactly. Uh, this was this was him. And uh, we, we talked and we were united in this commitment to recovery. And I am amazed at the grace that this guy has demonstrated. But he has allowed me to become a partner with him in some some worthy causes that we're, we're speaking about, redemption. And he has become a real leader in the community. And we've become friends. Uh, and I cannot think of a, a better individual story to cap, encapsulize that, Kurt. Than this guy Morris Derry, who he made some he made some mistakes, committed some crimes. He owned them. He pled guilty, accountability. He came out through a very tough stretch in Pennsylvania State Prison. is a tough, tough place that you don't want to be, and he's making the most of his life. And it's not been perfect, but uh, I will always stand by that guy, and uh, I, I give him so much credit for giving me the grace to to allowing me to be even a, a part of his life. But that's just one story. Uh, and I believe that that can be replicated all across your county, all across, frankly, the country. You can only do it one person at a time, mm -hmm. but it comes from leading by example. Uh, and, and certainly, I've committed to a number of programs that will give guys like Morris mm -hmm. Derry that opportunity. It's amazing to hear Dave say about the reentry coalition. Ours here in Bucks County is thriving. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I make it a point to personally go to every meeting. And I see ideas that pop like like popcorn, putting these people, this disparate institutions together. And then we have actually had in our jail, we've had uh, what do you call them? Work where where the employers mm -hmm. work job fairs in the jail because these the employers need mm -hmm. need people to work and they understand who they're getting and they still do the interviews. And then we have counselors that help the, the inmates interview because they're getting ready to re-enter. And I agree, let's plant those positive seeds so hopefully this guy can succeed and we'll never see him again. Yep. How do you guys address this? Because you guys both know that I do policy work um, and, and policy work's driven very much by the public and the public perception. Mm. That story that you just said, like incredible, right? And that's what we want. But we're not gonna get that with every person. No. And, and I find that when we're, we're trying to change policy, lawmakers, the public want a fix-all and, mm -hmm. and can't accept, oh, well, this saved 10 out of 20 people instead of all 20. Like, it's not good enough. So how, how do you get that message out? And one, get that message out to the public, say, this is what we need to do, and then stay in office so you can keep doing it. So it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm jumping you here. That's fine, Matt. Uh, <laughs> it is <laughs> it, home field we're, we're advantage. Right office. It is your office. Home I mean, court yeah, advantage. Home, home court advantage. advantage. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that the the bigger the platform, the brighter the lights, the more courage you have to demonstrate in taking what what are formerly unacceptable or non traditional concepts uh, and taking a chance and making them come to fruition. Uh, and so, to your point, I, I used Morris Derry's story as an example, but I try to lead that. Uh, and some people are very skeptical. They're like, "Why would you give this bum another chance?" Well, a because he's a human being. B, he paid his price, and C, if we don't, the alternative, he's just going to commit more crimes, reoffend, and he's going to, and his next victim may be you, and we don't want that to happen. So when I get a chance uh, to to preach on this kind of a message, I'm really out front about it, and we 
uh, are in a position in our communities, and I always call Bucks County my town. That's like colloquialism. I, this you're in my town, you know. Uh, but but people they give me some benefit of the doubt there, and when I say it, I always mean it like with all my heart. And so when I say we got to give all these other people the same chances that we all had, mm-hmm. you usually can convert people. And it's funny whenever I go to like a faith based uh, group to speak. They're, they buy into it wholeheartedly. They, they always attend. They always want it because they believe in redemption. And they are some of our most mm-hmm. conservative people, usually. Uh, but they get it. But I think it's up to us yep. to flip that switch and, and not be cowardly about it. Because some of the things that we're, we're going to say are not generally acceptab- accepted, but can be proven to be most effective. And and I think also what, what it is woefully under estimated the amount of people in our community who are directly impacted by substance abuse and mental health. You know, I really learned important lessons during the beginning of the opioid epidemic. I was actually a a drug prosecutor back then doing drug and, and gang prosecutions back in 2015, when the number of overdose overdose deaths tripled in York County. And I really wanted to learn more about it. So I went out into the community. I did like 200 town halls. And when I say town hall, I mean with like maybe three people in a church or four people in a fire hall, okay? Because I wanted to understand what was going on. And and as time went on and people saw that, hey, this guy's not going away, more people came out because the, the struggle that we all have in this fight, okay? And I think that the the more important the issue is, the harder the fight can be, is that everything we do is not within the political cycle. We're making policy decisions and doing work where you may not see the benefit in a two-year election, a four-year election. We are we are sowing the seeds of public safety that that may grow a decade or 20 years from now. And it takes courage as an elected official to stand up and say, I want my the police officers in York to carry naloxone, okay, back in 2015. You would think that was like the worst thing in the world, right? Yeah. I mean, I said, I want I all the police officers in York County to carry naloxone. And and what happened was, you know, at first you, you would think like, oh man, they're gonna think we're being weak on whatever whatever it is, okay? The community wanted it so desperately and when I say the community, I mean everybody from from in the urban areas to in the rural areas. It didn't matter what your personal demographics were um, because everyone knew someone and it was ripping their lives apart. And so so my point in saying that is there is a need and a desire in the community for this because it is so core to who we are as people. And that's being safe. Okay. And so I think that to answer your question, it is very difficult. This is hard because, again, it's not a tweet. Like you can't do a quick tweet or whatever about this. Um, we can you, do a podcast. You though. can do a podcast. <laughs> this is part of it. But what what it's going to take are leaders, okay, who have the courage to go to fire halls, to go to to go on the news, to go on the radio, and 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 set aside your typical five second hit and say, we have to do everything we can to make this community safe. 
yes, we prosecute bad guys. Okay. That's the thing we're good at. Like yeah. that's the easy part of the job, to be honest. Um, the hard part is the thoughtful, methodical way in which people like Matt and other DAs across the state and hopefully around the country are not only fighting the violent predators, right? But they are doing what they can to keep everybody from committing more crimes. That's what keeps the community safe. And one last point I want to make is we know that it is the trauma that kids have from their parents going in and out of prison is basically creating an entire new generation of kids that are most they're that are likely to be justice involved. Okay. We have to break that cycle. And coming out of COVID, I don't know how you see it here, but in York, COVID was not a friend to this cause. No. And horrible. COVID has put us back years. And so what you're doing right now, like podcasts like this, now more than ever, are absolutely critical. Well, these ideas, Matt, right, they aren't, in my view at least, and I'm going to hear your view, they're not soft on crime, right? If you're doing things to eradicate crime and keep the community safe, that's not soft on crime just because you're not putting people in prison uh, that maybe could do better elsewhere. That's not soft. That's getting rid of crime, right? Yeah, it's I just mean, good pragmatic common sense, Kurt. And I know that people uh, are, are always wondering... Mm -hmm. Well, it's easy for you guys to, to speak about this. You're in your nice, nice offices, uh, the, the so-called ivory tower effect. People always ask me, well, what can we do? Mm -hmm. And when somebody asks me, I better have an answer for them. Uh, I can't say I'm handling it or just spread the word, uh, although that is important too, to see something, say something. Mm -hmm. e ethos is very important. Mm -hmm. But I always try to give them something very tangible. So when it comes to public safety or protection, one thing we in Bucks County, this is my chance to brag on this for a, for a second. Brag. Please we do, brag. We do better than any other county in, in Pennsylvania is our medication take back program. We are close since its inception, which is now 12 or 13 years, have collected almost 200,000 pounds of old expired unused medications. And we've been thoughtful and creative about it. And when I say we, I don't mean we here. I mean the community has fully participated. They bring their vapes. They bring their pet meds. They bring their sharps. They bring boxes, containers of old expired unused medications so that they can never be used, diverted to hurt or kill somebody ever again. To me, that is the ultimate in crime prevention with community buy-in. And then every time we do one of these events, we make sure that people are aware. You don't have to wait for the event, the semi-annual event. Go to any one of your police agencies. Like Dave said, you got to get the police to buy in and drop them off. And I used to use the mailbox analogy. Sorry, Daisy, if I'm bothering you. <laughs> the mailbox analogy, but people don't know what the mailbox is anymore. But people have really bought in. It's a little thing that beeps on your computer when somebody sends you something, <laughs> right, right? Right. That's your mailbox these yeah. days. But oh. that, that's just a great example of where the community has embraced this as this is us helping to keep our own community safe. Mm -hmm. And I think we can do a lot more programs like that. And, you know, and, and not for you to be outdone. I mean, I'd like to brag a little bit as well. That, that is amazing, <laughs> though. 200,000 pounds. Close. Yeah, very close. And that is amazing. That's, that's you really impressive. We incinerate them. Okay. Yeah. So um, one of the things that we decided to tackle again, in the, in, you know, through the lens of easy problems, uh, the mental health issue. I mean, our prisons have become de facto mental health. Um, it's just where they go. Yeah, it's repositories. It's just a repository. Like people with severe mental health issues, they end up in jail. 
that's what happens. It's it's. Well, they get a lot of treatment there, don't they? It's it's terrifically, it's tremendously sad. Okay, and as a society, we have to do better with that. And so, what we did through our maximum engagement, we partnered with one of our regional healthcare providers, and we created this. It's called the Card Program, C A R D. Um, and common it, spelling. It's common spelling card. Um, <laughs> Community access for recovery and diversion. I mean, it's, well, you know, we like acronyms. So, but CARD, <laughs> so so what we have done is we noticed a tremendous problem with people that are getting arrested on small, petty crimes that go into prison. They have severe mental health issues. They don't make bail. They don't have any money for bail. Um, they can't get a mental health assessment and they end up languishing there way longer than they ever should. And and sometimes because we do not have enough service providers to do the mental health assessments, it might take months for something that could typically take a few days. So we partnered with our regional health care provider, WellSpan, and we create a scenario in which we now are, there's two different sort of paths this is happening. But if someone's arrested, they go into the prison, they're getting a mental health assessment within 48 hours. And then they have a caseworker who follows it and immediately does what needs to happen to get them into treatment, outpatient treatment, intensive outpatient treatment, wherever they need to go, okay? And again, these are for low-level offenders. We have, and this is through our partnership with the police departments, but we now have co-responders that go with police to all mental health calls. And this is really important. So um, the numbers we have so far this year, there was, there was around, around 400 mental health calls, okay? Which are, I actually saw one happen um, in front of our courthouse where a guy uh, was in a wheelchair. He actually stood up out of the wheelchair, picked up the wheelchair and threw it at someone. Okay. Clearly we have a mental health issue. And so police were called, they came out. Co-responders come with the police. The police make sure everything's safe right off the bat. Yeah. Okay. They make sure everything's safe. And so when it's safe, when it's safe, they then allow the co-responders to come in and then they try to talk that, figure out what's going on with that person um, to keep figure out where they need to go. Okay. And so with the, we had around 400 calls this year of those 400, um, any guesses on how many of those ended up going to jail? I'll tell you, what do you think? Out of 400, 400 people, how many went co responders to jail? with co-responders showing up on the scene? 25, uh, three. I was close. And so yeah. Now about In 200 four. of them were voluntarily committed. So That's great. 200 were voluntarily committed. Um, I think around 100 were involuntarily committed. And then the remainder, they might have ran or got away, whatever it might have been. But the takeaway is those individuals, when you look around and you see the horrific news, newspaper articles about, you know, this awful crime exists that happened or this violent crime, and they'll say this was a homeless person or this person had severe mental health issues. You know, these are ways to get ahead of that. Okay, and so I'm very proud of the outcome of that initiative. Can I add to that, please? Yeah, uh, yeah, and I want to ask you a question about it too. After you add, like that, all sounds great. I think it's perfect. Costs money. How do you how ah, do you get the money? So add to it, and mm -hmm. then tell me where the money comes the from. Trick of it. And yeah. I definitely want to get to our four legged yeah, guest here yeah. pretty quick. Well, she, she seems to be pretty comfortable. <laughs> um, so we have the co-responder program too, and uh, I, I believe in copying off of my neighbor's paper. That's how I got through law school. And uh, so I read about this. We, Me too. <laughs> just kidding. 
I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> there, we we have an aggregator uh, that, that comes through our district, Pennsylvania District Attorneys yep. Association and Institute, and it tells you about all the great ideas that other DAs have and, and are implementing, and I find it invaluable. And so I read about this co-responder program in Harrisburg, which is Dauphin County, Fran Chardo, mm -hmm. our colleague, was the first one that I heard of that employed it. And I said, I got to, we have to do this. It just makes sense. So people's initial barrier to it was, A, how do you pay for it? And B, is this defunding the police? Are you taking money away from the police? I was like, I'm not for that. Believe me. Right. Mm -hmm. No. What we did was we got the county to buy in and pay for it. So the county pays for the program initially to start up. We now have it in, I think, seven or 10 of our most populous areas. It's now spreading upwards countywide. We don't have it throughout the county, but it has become invaluable. The police mm -hmm. go out, they make it safe. And then these repetitive calls, mm -hmm. the, the, the hoarder, the lonely person mm -hmm. that calls 911, the, the person that needs mental health help or that may, may be, uh, uh, it, it need recovery because the, the, they're having a hard time uh, without relapsing, the, the social work. Mm -hmm. But the police used to have to be the de facto yep. social workers. And their answer always was with to a person who's holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Mm -hmm. I'm taking you to jail. Well, and they're not trained to do that, no, right? That, that's not what police not. officers are trained to do. So our county, full credit. Uh, and it's interesting, you want to just digress to politics. So I'm, I am in the minority that my commissioners are the majority party wise, they've completely cooperated because it's for the good of the community in mm -hmm. implementing this co-responder program. And it's been wildly successful. Well, I think it's evident, you know, overall in our criminal justice system that we are not getting the return on investment that we should. We pump a lot of money into it, right? And it's programs like this, like CARD, that, that make the difference. And, and so the challenge is, and hopefully this can help podcasts like this, is to is to show how we're getting that return on investment to lawmakers. I can tell you there's a couple lawmakers in Arizona I deal with all the time. I'm not going to name them. I would walk in and talk to them about this program, and they would say, well, it seems like if they didn't do drugs, they wouldn't be in this position. You know, and, and, and it's tough to answer that. So what I try to do, and it sounds like with your statistics, what you guys are doing is I always argue to the people that are with me and empower them. Right. I'm not going to change this guy's or this gal's mind on, on something. But if all their colleagues uh, like the commissioners buy in, then, you know, they're more likely to come along. And if you look at it, so we we crunch the numbers on this for that specific purpose. And when you look at all the initiatives that we've put into place in your county, I'm looking right now at two very important numbers. The first one is new criminal cases filed down 41 percent sounds like soft on crime no you're 41 percent that's what it is and at the same time guess what else has gone down our york county prison average daily population's gone down 46 percent in that same time period if those numbers were going in the opposite direction we'd be in trouble but they are aligned okay because people through all of the diversion through the mental health treatment, substance abuse treatment, Ranchery Coalition. I mean, you have to attack. I was in a Navy, right? Like you have to, when you attack a problem, you have to attack it with every single tool in the toolbox. Okay. And this saves taxpayers tons of money. It saves them tons of money 
on prison days in particular. Our treatment courts in York um, saved on average well over last uh, last year, I think it was around $1.7 million uh, for taxpayers because these are individuals that are not in prison. And not only is it saving them money, but crime is decreased because it's actually harder to go through a treatment court than to sit in, in jail, to be honest. I mean, and so so you have people that are not committing more crimes. They have to follow through with their treatment. They have to stay at work. They have to take care of their family. And then when they're done, their chances of recidivism are way lower. And at the same time, you're saving taxpayer dollars. Um, this is common sense. And I want to also reemphasize real quick is that the accountability side of this. It is harder for a defendant to go through these programs than it would be for that defendant to go sit in a prison cell for half the period of time. Well, I've always I've always made that argument too. Like it's harder for them. And if they go through these programs, that means they are actually incentivized to do it and they got a better chance yep. uh, when they come out. I mean, it's amazing. Hopefully, you know, podcasts like this, news clips, getting out into the community will help spread this type of stuff around the nation. And that's what we're trying to do. Um, I want to know who the most famous assistant district attorney in the office here in Bucks County is, Matt. Uh, hands down, it's Daisy. And she, Daisy is? I saw you look down. She, yeah. <laughs> she is our uh, therapy dog. We saw, uh, as you know, we deal with victims uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And a victim that, that has to come to court is re-traumatized, sadly, because they're going to have to tell something about the most humiliating event or, or difficult event they've ever had to experience. And while we're dealing with them every day, we thought to ourselves, we need to have somebody, uh, in this instance, Daisy, that can help them through it. And Daisy has been through a rigorous training process. She took two years of training. And here's an interesting wrinkle. Daisy was trained by a female inmate in state prison through a, another collaborative program. But we got her through Canine Partners for Life which is in, I think, Cochranville, PA, which is between Dave and I, between our counties. Uh, Daisy has now been with, with us for about three years. As you pointed out, Kurt, she is a celebrity. When Daisy <laughs> goes for her regular walks, and always with a handler, of course, uh, people want to come up to her. They want to pet her. They want to they be licked by her. She is just has the sweetest, most gentle disposition, and it has been a wild success. In fact, Montgomery County, which borders Bucks County, their dog retired, their comfort dog. And they asked if they could borrow Daisy for a very, very high profile, serious case. And so we took Daisy's act on the road and we brought her to Montgomery County Courthouse. Daisy has accompanied us to schools. She's accompanied us to community programs. She's the best ambassador we could ever have for this like alternative thinking about how to tackle problems together. Well, it's 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 the whole right. You, clearly not soft on crime. Clearly thinking about victims, looking to make everybody in the system, you know, get through it and move on and be better. I mean, it's great to meet you, Daisy. <laughs> um, glad she could she could be here. You know, you guys. I mean, we could go on for hours and hours. And we want to make sure people watch thirty five to forty five minutes of the right. podcast. But um, one, I want to thank you both 
Matt, thanks so much for like hosting us here um, and with all the disruption and, and everything. Cause I know you guys actually, we just heard about it, have jobs to do. And uh, Dave, you know, I know that you just got back from a, you know, sunny vacation somewhere and came, came up here to do this. So really appreciate it. I want to thank you both. I'm going to give you both a chance here. If they want to know more about what you guys are doing, the websites. Very easy. It's bucksda.org. People are real familiar with it. There's a great give and take on there. People can leave tips. They can get information. We return every email. We return every phone call. Yep. Same thing in your county, yorkda.com. Yorkda.com. And I can tell you, our viewers, that if you Google these guys looking for something bad, I went through about nine or 10 pages of Google, could find nothing. Maybe one comment on a Facebook, but these guys are doing, you know, God's work really is. And I really appreciate you guys having uh, me here, uh, letting us do this and, and uh, helping us get the word out about yep. all the good stuff you're doing. Um, I want to thank you guys, our production crew, my on-field producer, everybody who's here uh, to help us get this done. And if you guys want to learn more about what Right on Crime is doing, you can go to Right on Crime, just how it sounds, common spelling, <laughs> rightoncrime.com, rightoncrime.com. And, uh, you know, hopefully you'll see a bunch more um, information about these guys and everybody else that's taking a risk, stepping out to make the criminal justice system better. Uh, and the community safer. Thanks again, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Matt.